So he grabbed hold of her, and someone else grabbed her other arm, and uh, he started to take her out, and he said, wait a minute. And he had that march that she had played to come in started up again. So to the music she had caused to be played so she could come in, he caused it to play so she could be drug out. <laughs> you know how dreams are, kind of a strange thing. And uh, once he got rid of her, and he went to the reception, his wife was there, she was all upset and uh, discouraged and frustrated and angry and all those things. So he went in, at this point, the reception. I didn't, didn't see the wedding itself in this dream, but he went on to the reception, and she was there, and the guests were there. So he stood up and made a speech. And he said the worst was over, that the things had been tried to be disrupted and had been disrupted. And he says there's only way, one way for this marriage to go now, and that's up. He says, so we're going to have our lifetime together to enjoy, and everything is going to be better from this day on, and I'm about to have the dance with my bride, so if you want to join in, welcome and wonderful, uh, we're going to have a good time now out of all this trouble. Meantime, someone had gone to the bridesmaid's car before she had left in it, and had recovered the wallet and the purse and all the other things that they were going to take on their honeymoon with them. And she left in shame. Pretty much into that story. Except that two or three times during that dream, and it seemed like it took a long time for all this to develop, uh, the thought kept coming to my mind, what about Christ and his bride? Now, in Satan's mind, he must be a bridegroom of sorts. Uh, he was a rival of Christ. Christ qualified to uh, set him aside. But he wants to disrupt the wedding, doesn't he? <laughs> Isn't he all about disrupting Christ and his bride's wedding? Is he not trying to steal our treasure in heaven from us that we are to lay up so that there be something there of value? Uh, will not Christ stand up and usher him out and bind him a thousand years, he and those who are with him, the other parts of the wedding party that rebelled with her? And doesn't he tell us that in spite of the fiasco that Satan has caused and the disruption of his bride as she moves toward being prepared for the wedding, uh, won't he stand up and announce that all these troubles have been put aside, and my bride and I are going to go ahead and live together happily ever after. So, it may not have been a dream that was of any great consequence, but to me, uh, there was a story there that caught my attention, and it seemed to fit the situation that Christ and Satan, the Father, and the bride, the bride are facing. Now, we just reviewed the Exodus and how God began to work with 
certain people and promised that he would be with them and guide them and help them. And we saw how they were delivered, but we also saw that it was not an easy thing that Satan disrupted uh, the flight. We call it sin. We call it Egypt or Mitzrayim. But we know Satan, the devil, was behind the whole thing, and he tried to destroy Israel there. But God, by a great series of plagues, by great trouble, by great death of the firstborn of Mitzrayim, he delivered them in spite of the situation. Now, that was a great empire at that time, and it was essentially destroyed by the time we got done with the story there. Let's fast forward to this time that we now are in and go to Revelation 6. Let's just pick it up in here and do kind of a brief uh, overview of what is coming on this world very shortly because the world is steeped in sin and Satan is the present ruler of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. He broadcasts into the air and is able to influence the minds of people through the power that he has. Now, even as God can influence us if we obey him through the power of his Holy Spirit, Satan also has is a spirit and also has the power to broadcast, like radio or television, uh, through the airwaves. And he can enact with the human mind and lead it astray. So God says he's going to take care of this. Now, the first few, book, few chapters of Revelation have to do essentially with Christ uh, pictured there in glory and the wonderful things about him and about the church. Uh, he is cast here ultimately as the bridegroom. And he talks to those who would become his bride in chapters 2 and 3 about uh, their problems, uh, their need to overcome so that they might become a part of his bride uh, through chapter 3. And then uh, we see the throne of God in chapter 4 and how uh, the church has to relate to the Father, to the Son, and to the glory of the throne of God. And then in chapter 5, it talks about how Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and about the prayers of his saints in 8, and how they sang a new song in 9, and how he was open, able to open the seals, because he had been slain and redeemed us to God by the blood of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and that we would be kings and priests and reign over the earth in verse 10. Uh, I'll stop in 10 for the moment. We'll get back to verse 11 a little later on. So he is the one who is able to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength, honor and glory. Uh, not Satan. Christ is the bridegroom. Now, he unleashes some horrible things to begin the removal of sin, to get sin out of the picture, even as he did to get Mitzrayim out of the picture and the sin that it represents. And Mitzrayim to this day in Scripture represents sin. 
uh, we speak of Egypt as a type of sin, using the term Egypt as we always have. And this world and Satan is a type of sin and how he has deceived the whole world. So the Lamb appears in chapter 6 of Revelation and unleashes these four horsemen, a white horse uh, who had a bow and a crown, and he went forth to conquer. So that's a military presence that is turned loose. Uh, then the second seal, and here was another beast, a red one, and he was able to take peace from the earth, and that he should kill, that people would kill one another, and a great sword. Then the black horse had a pair of balances in his hand, and that represents uh, small measures of grains and uh, things to eat, so it represents famine. And then following that, verse 8, the pale horse, which represents death and hell, and by him was a fourth part of the earth able to be killed with sword, hunger, death, and with the beasts of the earth. So, there's an awful lot of famine and pestilence, war, the sword, and various means of death through those first four things that he does. Then he opens the fifth seal in verse 9, and we saw many who had died as a result of mankind's insanity against man, and especially against God's people. Because Satan hates those who would become the bride more than anyone else. Even as the bridegroom in my little dream was trying to disrupt in every way the bride herself. That was the main focus of the situation. Now Satan has tried to unseat Christ, has he not, with the temptation after 40 days of fasting. And he was unsuccessful. But he has been trying all along to disrupt uh, to frustrate, to discourage, and to destroy the bride. That's been his goal and purpose, above all others of his goals and purposes. And they wondered how long before we are avenged. Still dead, but this, this is in, uh, uh, in vision, if you will. Then he opened the sixth seal, and a great earthquake the sun became black as hair, sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. Stars fell from heaven. The heavens departed as a scroll, verse 14. And the mountains and the islands moved out of their places. This could refer to uh, governments of men as well as uh, physical mountains. Probably some of both. But they said to themselves, uh, they hid in dens and rocks of the mountains and wanted the rocks to fall on them to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, for His wrath is about to begin. Will it sound a little bit like what happened in Mitzrayim, only worse? <laughs> uh, it's going to get worse as we go here. It's going to be far greater than what happened to Mitzrayim. Chapter 7. Uh, no, let's, don't, let's skip that and go to 8. The seventh seal uh, talks about the 144,000 here and those who would serve God. But I want to continue with the story of the destruction. Open the seventh seal, and there were seven trumpets there that comprised the seventh seal. Uh, let's go down 
they prepared themselves to sound in verse 6. The first one sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast on the earth, and the third part of the trees was burned up, and all green grass was burned up. That sounds like one of the plagues of, we read about in Exodus, does it not? The second angel sounded, and were like a great mountain burning with fire cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood, just as the river became blood in Mitzrayim. The very great similarities between this end time and what God has done before. Third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third part of the ships were destroyed. Well, that's a lot of destruction right there. Not just Mitzrayim, but a third of the sea. A third of the ships that are in the seas. Third angel sounded, a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp, and it fell upon the third part of the rivers and the fountains of waters. So the fresh water now. The name of the star is called Wormwood. A third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters because they were made bitter. Some think that this planet X is Wormwood. Who knows how this will turn out? Uh, I don't really care what is the actual source of these things. Uh, God knows what he's going to do, and this is the result. And the result is really all that matters, whether you can identify it ahead of time and know exactly what comet or what planet or whatever it is that's coming is neither here nor there. Uh, what happens is what counts. And this destroys the fresh water. So then the fourth trumpet sounds. A third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and a third of the stars. So the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. So, two-thirds of the time's dark now. Uh, I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, verse 13, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth by the reason of the other voices of the trumpets, which are yet to sound. So, it's pretty bad up to this point, and the angel says three times, Woe, because of the ones that are to come now. So the fifth one is that first woe. I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened this pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit, and there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. This could be referring to demons who are turned loose. And we'll get down to how many demons there are a little later on. I've never speculated on that or heard anything about it, but I think we can know pretty close. But they weren't to hurt the grass or green thing or any tree, uh, but only those men which have not the seal of God. Now, the seal of God is going to only be on a total of 144,000, and that includes a lot of people from the Old Testament and the early New Testament church, who will not be alive at this time. So only those who are still living of the 144,000 uh, will have the seal of God. Will that be about 15,000? They're allowed to touch many in the tribulation who have gone into that, 90% of the church. Maybe this is only about 15,000 that they can't touch. Now, is there a beginning of a thought of deliverance 
for those who will obey and serve God? Sounds like it. It was given to them that they should not kill them, but they should be tormented five months, and their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. And in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. The shapes of the locusts were like horses prepared to battle in crowns of gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. Hair like women, long, not of, they're not of God. Their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they sound pretty bad. The noise of their wings was like horses running to battle. Angels have wings. I mean, demons have wings. Tails like scorpions. Well, we've said some of these things might be simply aircraft with stings in their tails. Guns fore and aft and bombs and so on. Anyway, they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit. That would be who? Whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in Greek tongue has his name Apollyon. So Satan is overseeing this uh, and his demons, and they will use men, and it could indeed include uh, weapons of war that Satan uses men to deploy. So verse 12, that's passed, and here comes another one right behind it. The sixth one sounded. Uh, and in verse 14 it says, Loose the four angels which are bound on the great river Euphrates. And they were loosed, and they pre were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year to slay the third part of men. A lot of people have been killed by now, and these are given power to destroy a third of what is left. There's six billion here today. Uh, two billion of those is one-third. Now, if some have been destroyed ahead of this, then a third of what's left wouldn't be two billion, but it'd be a very, very significant number of people. And the number of these were 200,000 thousand. And I heard the number of them. That's 200 million. 200 million are turned loose to destroy under 2 billion people. Keep that number in mind, 200 million. Uh, are these specially prepared, or are these the demons under Satan? But uh, verse 18, by these three that he saw uh, were the third part of men killed by the fire, by smoke, brimstone, which issued out of their mouths, and the powers in their mouth and in their tails, like serpents, and they do hurt. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands. They hardened their hearts. Remember Pharaoh? <laughs> they will not repent. After this much destruction, billions of people dead, they would not repent that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and wood, which neither can see nor hear nor talk. Our materiality has us. Neither repented they of their murders, their sorceries, their fornication, nor of their thefts. They're going to continue the way of life that they have, and they're not about to repent of their sins. 
Man, that's a lot of destruction. You'd think that they would give up and repent. You'd thought Pharaoh would have too at some point there with lice and frogs and <laughs> hail and all those things. Wasn't going to give up. He lost all the firstborn and finally he turned them loose. But even then he didn't give up and pursued them to the sea where he and his whole army died. So sin does not turn loose easily. And we find here in the book of Revelation it doesn't turn loose easily either. Let's go to chapter 11. There is even more trouble coming. He says in verse 3, I'll give power to my two witnesses. They'll prophesy for uh, 1260 days. These are the two olive trees of the book of Zechariah 3 and 4 and 6. If any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. And of course, Satan and the whole world, who are worshiping the beast, will be trying to kill these two. Now, God gives them the same power that he has given uh, in the first seals. They have power to shut heaven, and it rained not in the days of their prophecy. That was uh, something that Elijah did. And these two are typified by Elijah and Moses. So he gives the same power to them that he gave to Elijah. He also gave them power over water to turn them to blood, just as in Mitzrayim, and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Not just turn water to blood, but any and all kinds of plagues. That could mean any of those that were done in Mitzrayim. It could be some that have not even yet been seen. All plagues, all kinds of plagues. They can turn loose on the world as often as they choose. Now, they are going to go, I think, to every people, every city uh, around the earth. And when they preach, and those people will not repent, probably those plagues will be released day by day as they are not listened to. And then... When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit shall make war and overcome them and kill them. And after they are killed, three and a half days later, they're resurrected along with the rest of the saints when Christ returns on the seventh trump. Now, the seventh trump we all look forward to, do we not? Because it represents the return of Emmanuel to this earth, the changing and uh, resurrection of his saints, to be with him. Now, that's a good thing for the people of God, isn't it? But his return does not bode well (laughs) for the rest of the world. Let's go on to chapter 12 before we get to that. Uh, Here, Satan is standing in front of the woman, that is the church, verse 4, to devour her child as soon as it was born. He was there to devour Christ. Uh, Herod did announce that all boy babies were to be killed. And even as Christ is produced in us here at the end time, he is there to snuff out Christ in us by killing us. 
because unto us a child is born. That's a prophecy, not just of his first time here, but of his second time here, where he comes to the church. And Satan wants to de- to destroy him out of our lives. She brought forth a man-child who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron, verse 5. And verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her 1260 days. Or So Satan will try to destroy the church and God will take her to a place of safety. Anyway, uh, there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, but he didn't prevail, and he was not going to be allowed up there in heaven anymore. So he, he who deceives the whole world <coughs> was cast to the earth, verse 9, and he is the accuser of the brethren. Uh, he accused them before our God day and night. So uh, Satan is the great accuser of the brethren. And when brethren accuse brethren, then they are the minions of Satan. Anytime you are in the role of an accuser, you are a Satan follower, a Satan worshiper. Let's put this as strongly as Christ did to the Pharisees. You worship, you know not what. If you do the things of Satan, you are of Satan. His Your father is the one that you follow. Is gossip and accusation a serious offense? It is an offense worthy of death. Satan, because of his accusations against the brethren, is going to be bound forevermore in solitary confinement. And those who follow Satan as accusers of the brethren will go into the lake of fire, and there they will die. Because accusation is the same as murder. It is the spirit of death and murder. Negativity is murder. God will not have negativity in his kingdom. So Satan is cast out of his kingdom, and his negativity will no longer be allowed there, And neither will anyone who is negative be allowed there. We must become positive. We must fulfill Philippians 4, verse 8. And seek those things which are good and positive and uplifting. And look for the good in people, not the evil. If you don't do that, you're going into the lake of fire. Bottom line. That's God's judgment. And Satan's going there. Anyway, he's cast down, and he has comes with great wrath, verse 12. He knows he has but a short time. Just as that bridesmaid knew her time was limited, but she was going to make herself, put herself forward as much and as powerfully as she could. He persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child, and she was given wings of a great eagle. Matthew 24 says, flee uh, on foot, don't even go back, oh, but he delivers. And he's the great eagle who delivers, even if we go on foot. The serpent cast out of his mouth water, verse 15, as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood of the army. Uh, 
The earth helped the woman, and the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Does that sound like the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his army? Uh, a flood of men after Israel to keep them from leaving sin, to keep them from leaving the clutches of Satan, if you will. And she escaped. But verse 17, the ragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Emmanuel. <clears throat> so, in other words, 10% of the church is gathered together, and most of that 10% uh, here is delivered. It does say, though, that when this the abomination is set up there in Matthew 24, that you were to pray that you'd be accounted worthy to escape. So even of those 10% who are gathered together to build a temple in Jerusalem, when the Satan is cast down, there will be another cut right there where some will not be worthy to escape and will be left behind. So just getting to Zion and Jerusalem and being part of the end-time work of God, the last part of it, does not guarantee anything, so you pray that you be counted worthy to escape. <clears throat> if not, you will be left behind. Now, 90% of the church is already left out in the world, and then there will be another batch here that is left behind. Is that signified by Ezekiel, where ten, a third, a third, and a third were cast into uh, war, famine, and pestilence, and then he took a few more out of his waistband and threw them in the fire. So, 90% are left behind when 10% are delivered the first time, and then some more are thrown in the fire when the escape to a place of safety occurs. <clears throat> so that's over 90% then who go into the tribulation. That's the ones that verse 12 or verse 19 are talking about. They have the testimony of Christ. They have the Sabbath. They have the, uh, the holy days. They have the knowledge and understanding. And they have been trying to keep the commandments. They haven't said they're done away with or denied. But they have been laid a sin. They have not repented. They have not turned to God with their whole hearts. And they are left behind. And that 90 plus percent... Satan will make war on and kill them. We can read that back in Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11. I won't go back there. But he was given power. Let's see. Let's go to 13 now. Here we see a beast arising. And I won't go through all the details about how it's wounded and so on and what it represents. But he was given a mouth in verse 5 to speak great things. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So this beast is empowered by Satan and he hates God, he hates Christ, he hates the angels, and he hates all mankind. And he really hates the church. Verse 7, it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Now, this is not the ones who are in the place of safety, less than 10% of what was the church here at the end. This is those left behind, and he will kill them. 
Daniel 12 talks about how when the power of the holy people has been scattered. I think it's eight or nine that talks about... Let's, let's go back there for a moment to Daniel. Um, here I've been eight. This is talking about the latter time of the kingdom of these oppressors. Uh, verse 23, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences, the occult in other words, shall stand up and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He'll be motivated and empowered by Satan to do mighty signs and wonders. And he shall destroy wonderfully or hugely and shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft demon worship, to prosper in his hand, and magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes, but will be broken without hand. So he is going to destroy over 90% of the church, except those 10% minus a few hairs who will be in the place of safety. So the great tribulation is this time period in which uh, the church that is left will be destroyed. Some will repent, Zechariah says, about a third, apparently, during that period of time. No wonder Daniel, verse 27, fainted and was sick certain days, <laughs> because he saw this in vision of what is coming. And it's all coming down to chapter 12. Uh, here he says, he talks about the 1260 days, time, times, and time and a half, three and a half years, 1260, 42 months, when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. Now, he's been killing those who are left behind. Only those who are in the place of safety will be protected, little less than 10% of what was the end time church. And when will he have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people. When he kills the two that have been tormenting him through this whole time. Now, they're the ones that are given the power. Those in the place of safety have the power to be a light and an example to the world, but they don't have the power to bring plagues and death and destruction to the whole world. But those two do. So when they are killed... That finishes scattering all power of the holy people to do anything against the beast. And that's why they are going to party worldwide and send gifts to each other and say, we finally got rid of those who are tormenting us. The power of the holy people will have been completely destroyed. And that's the end of these things when this will be finished. Three and a half days later, Christ returns. Now, let's go back to the book of Revelation. In chapter 13, uh, he makes war with the saints, verse 7, verse 8. All that dwell on the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Satan deceives the whole world, and it says right here that this beast power that is arising will be worshipped by the whole world except those few who are still obeying God. 
Now, that could include the 90-plus percent who are left in the tribulation, but they are going to be killed there. So it only leaves those who are in a place of safety and protected from this who will be preserved. Is this beginning to sound like a pretty powerful deliverance from God? I think so. The whole world worships the beast. And only 15,000 or less uh, still worship God. And then you have another beast come up out of the earth, two horns like a lamb, and spoke as a dragon, or like Satan. So he appears as an angel of light, like the Lamb of God, but speaks like a dragon. And he has all the power of the first beast, uh, and he does great wonders, verse 13, so he makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceives them that dwell on the earth by the means of the miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Now, didn't that happen in Mitzrium, where their magicians did duplicated some of the wonders and signs of God? So Satan has the power to appear as an angel of light and to do great signs and wonders and even call fire down from heaven. And that's going to impress an awful lot of people. And they'll say, who can fight against the beast? And he'll have a financial system, and you can't be part of it. It'll be a digitized system, I feel certain, that your wealth can only be read through a chip in your forehead or your hand. They'll do away with credit cards by then, and they're experimenting with it right now today where you just wave your hand over and you pay that way. They've already got it now where all you have to do is wave your credit card at the machine. And pretty soon, the chip that's in that card will be in your hand or your forehead. And he says, don't worship that. But the world will. Now, when Christ returns, I said that's a good thing for the saints of God, the 144,000. But for everyone else living... It's a bad, bad time. Let's go to Revelation uh, 15. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now, so far, we've been seeing mainly the wrath of Satan and his demons, haven't we? Where uh, he brings a third of the stars of heaven and so on and creates these signs and wonders and is allowed to kill. <clears throat> now we have the wrath of God, not the wrath of Satan. Now the timing and the setting of this is when Christ returns and resurrects, the first resurrection, he, on the picture by the Feast of Trumpets, you have the Day of Atonement come next, which is the wedding of Christ and his bride. Now, Satan has been fighting this and trying to kill all saints up to this point. But Christ takes those that are alive and remain, immortalizes them, and resurrects the dead in Christ, so that you have 144,000 as the bride of Christ rising with him to go get married. So Christ stands for his bride and casts off the would-be bridesmaid, or the one that Satan is using. So, during that year, when Christ is at the Father's throne, 
standing on the sea of glass, as you see in verse 2. He takes off a year from war, just as in Deuteronomy 24, when you marry a wife, you're to take off and not work for a year and cheer up your wife. So after all that has transpired down here, the bride will meet with Christ on the sea of glass to be married, and they have gotten victory over Satan and this world. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. So they'll sing the same song that Moses sang when they came out of Mitzrayim. And the seven last plagues then occur during that year. And uh, the seven angels came out of the temple, verse 6, having the seven plagues. So these are angels of God, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. This isn't demons, this is righteous angels of God. And one of the four beasts given to the seven angels, seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. Now that must be one of the four beasts before the throne of God who give these angels this capacity to do what they are about to do. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. So this is that year when Christ is having His honeymoon with His bride. A day is as a year. Uh, and that honeymoon is supposed to last a year. Now, it may be cut short so that some flesh would be saved alive. It says in Matthew 24, unless it's cut short, there will be no flesh saved alive. Let's examine this. Now, I'm not going through these in detail and trying to give a, a dissertation on every verse and so on. That would take a long time. I'm giving you an overview of the destruction that is coming that is supposed to free us from this world and sin and Satan. And what it takes to do that, to free the world of that. Chapter 16. Here's the seven angels with these seven last plagues. The first poured out his vial on the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon men, which had the mark of the beast, and that's everybody but those few thousand that are in a place of safety. It's like the boils in Egypt poured out. God's repeating those things. Mankind didn't learn from the lesson of Mitzrayim, did they? They didn't learn anything from the Red Sea. They really didn't learn anything from the flood of Noah. They haven't learned anything yet. So they'll have boils all over them. Second angel poured his vial on the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. So power to kill a third of the sea was given to the demons earlier. Now to these righteous angels, they don't just turn the river into blood, they turn the sea into blood. Much bigger deal. Now, we're going to read a scripture in a little bit about what God says about this end-time deliverance and how it's greater than what happened in Mitzrayim. Well, there's one example right there. <laughs> Not just in one empire, but the whole world they get boils. Not just in a river, but the whole sea turns to blood. A third angel poured his vial on the rivers and fountains of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water say, You are righteous, O Lord, which are and were and shall be, because you have judged thus. 
So he's saying, this is righteous judgment coming from Christ, that these things should happen. Satan has such a hold on this world that this is the kind of demonstration that is going to be required to even begin to humble people. Fourth angel sounded. It was on the sun, and it was given power to scorch men. They were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God. Their heart was hardened. And they repented not to give him glory. Sounds like Pharaoh, eh? Verse 10, the fifth angel sounded, poured out his vial on the seat of the beast, the government of Satan. And his kingdom was full of darkness. Ah, remember the darkness of, that could be felt that we just read in Exodus? They gnawed their tongues for pain. That's the kind of darkness making them go insane, where they were actually chewing on their own tongues. That is quite a darkness. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. Is it hard to get out of sin or what? Is it hard for man to repent or not? Sixth angel poured his vial on the great Euphrates. Water was dried up. The way of the kings of the east that the way might be prepared. In other words, an invasion is going to come against Christ, and they're clearing the way uh, by drying up the river so they can just come marching them, Armageddon. <coughs> Verse 13, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. Again, a reminder of Mitzrayim. Come out of the mouth of the dragon and the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So Satan and the beast power and the false prophet. So it's a military power and a religious power led by Satan. The spirits of devils working miracles which go forth to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of the Almighty, the battle of Armageddon. So Satan is going to be marshalling everyone who is left <laughs> to come and fight Christ. He came and resurrected the saints, took them back to heaven, married them, and then when he comes back, they will be with him when he comes with a vesture dipped in blood riding on a white horse to put down all power that is left and slay men who are left because they have not repented. So they came to Armageddon. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his vial. And a voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. There are voices, thunders, lightnings, and a great earthquake, greater than any since man has been on the earth. And Babylon was destroyed, the islands and the mountains were not found, and a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. That's 120 pounds, a lot of ice in each one. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. Now these signs and wonders and plagues are far greater than anything we've read about in the book of Exodus. And yet men will not repent. Their hearts are hardened and they blaspheme God. And then it shows the judgment of the whore and uh, how she will fall. And then we see in chapter 19, uh, Christ 
Having married the Lamb, in verse 7, his wife has made herself ready. She has the righteousness of saints. And then they have the wedding supper, so the wedding has been done. And then the heaven opened, in verse 11, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him was called Faithful and True. In righteousness does he judge and make war. So after the seven last plagues, they're still blaspheming God and will not repent and turn to God and to Christ. So here his eyes are like a flame of fire, and in his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. That's Christ, John 1.1. 1, 1. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword to smite the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, verse 16. And all these buzzards and animals then are invited to come to a supper of the bodies of those who are killed by the great God, into verse 17. They'll eat the flesh of kings and captains and so on, and the flesh of all men, small and great. And the beast and the false prophet were taken by the nap of the neck and cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant, verse 21, were slain with the sword of him that sat on the horse. So Christ is going to come back and make war. His saints will be with him at that time, coming back down with him, because they will ever be with him, as the book of Judge, uh, Jude shows, and somewhere else, I think. Satan and sin will not turn loose of this world. Chapter 20, you see... Christ come and take him and put him in solitary confinement for a thousand years. And he's not loosed for a thousand years. And then peace will come to this earth. Now, through all that blood, I want to go back now to Isaiah 43. And let's understand the context here. Herbert Armstrong's end time work ended in, Hez in uh, Isaiah 39 when Hezekiah died, uh, having lived out his life in peace. Uh, and then his sons uh, were made eunuchs and sent out into the world and had no power. And Herbert Armstrong died, and then Tkachis took over and... The church went back into the world, but they have no power to, to do anything. And even those who retain the commandments and the testimony of Christ are unable to do anything. The only ones who will be given power at the end are the two witnesses and those who are with them. And that story starts in Isaiah 40, where it says, Comfort my people and say that all men will become as grass and make a highway for our God. That's the final end-time work. We had one under Herbert Armstrong, which is a calling work. Then we'll have one under the two witnesses, which is a powerful preaching against the world work, at the same time delivering the church first. It shows the church first in Revelation 11, 1 through 3, and in Zechariah 4, how they uh, give oil to the seven churches. And they're told to leave out the Gentiles until later there in Revelation 11. 
And when the church is taken care of, the temple is built, Jerusalem is built, and the abomination is set up, they will begin to preach to the world. And that remnant, 10% or a little less, will be in a place of safety as an example of how God can bless if people will simply obey. But the world will not obey. And the witnesses then will have to do all kinds of plagues and tortures on them when they try to kill them. So let's go to Isaiah 43 with that background in mind of of where we are here uh, in the end time. And it's talking about God's witnesses here in chapter 43. mentions it at least three times, I think. For those who have been selected to be protected. He says in verse 43, 1, Fear not, I've redeemed you. I've called you by your name, you are mine. And he says in verse 2, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon you. For I am the eternal of your God, uh, your Savior, and I gave Mitzrayim for your ransom. So he says, remember what you went through before? Uh, whatever you have to go through, I will take care of you. Didn't Christ tell the disciples, if you eat anything poison or you're struck by a snake, it won't harm you? And didn't Paul get bit by a snake and it didn't harm him? So this is an end time now, not just then. Uh, verse 5, Fear not, I am with you. I'll bring your seed from the east, gather you from the west, the north and the south. I'll bring you together. Uh, and he says there, verse 8, Bring forth the blind, the people that have eyes, and the deaf that have ears. And let all the nations be gathered together, and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this? Who's going to tell what's about to happen? They can't do it. Verse 10, You are my witnesses, those whom I have redeemed, set aside, sanctified, those who are true Christians. There will only be less than 15,000 of them left. Maybe only 8 or 12. But let's just use the form of the number 15 since there were essentially 15, 150,000 in worldwide at one point before it came apart. So that's the number we can use, but Elijah's 8,000 who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal is used twice. So it may be that God only counts 8,000. I don't know that. We'll wait and see how much 10% is. And he says, I am the only Savior, verse 11, and I have declared and have saved and I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, you are my witnesses, says the Eternal, that I am God. There will be less than 15,000 people on earth that will give witness of who God is. Out of around six, six, six and a half billion that we have today. That's not very many. Now notice verse 14. Thus says the Eternal, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon, and have brought down all their nobles, and the Chaldeans, whose cry is in the ships. God says, I'm going to destroy the Babylonian Empire, which ultimately is worldwide under Satan, his Babylonian confused system is going to be destroyed for the sake of the few righteous. Remember Lot? 
And how Abraham said, well, if there's only this many, will you save it? If there's this many, will you save it? If there's many, this many, will you save it? Got it way on down there, what was it, to ten or so? And there weren't ten righteous. Not very many. But for the sake of a few, he would have saved it. Here in the end, he's not going to save it either. By percentage, there aren't very many. All right, let's go down... Uh, 16, thus says the Eternal, which makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters. He divided the Red Sea. He he, uh, caused the Jordan to back up, which brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together. They shall not rise. They are extinct. They are quenched as tow in a fire. So then he tells us, verse 18, Remember you not the former things, neither consider the things of old. I quoted this several times, I think, a couple times during the series in Exodus there. He says, don't, don't even think about the things of the past. Noah's flood, the Red Sea, backing up of the Jordan. Don't worry about, don't think about those things. Here's what to consider. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field shall honor me, the dragons and the owls. Now, he didn't do that when they went into the wilderness, did he? He gave them a little water to drink now and then. He gave them some quail and manna. But he didn't do what he says he's going to do here in the end time. Because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. He hasn't returned yet. This is still talking about the time of destruction of Babylon. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. There'll be a light from Mount Zion to the world. And then the two will go out and point to them as the light, and the world will deny it, and they will get plagues because they will not turn and do what those people are doing. I hope I can say we people. They'll show my praise. But he says, you've wearied me with your iniquities and not brought me the offerings that I want. Verse 26, put me in remembrance, let us plead together, declare you that you may be justified. Your first father has sinned and your teachers have transgressed against me. That's why worldwide was blown apart. Therefore, I have profaned the princes of the sanctuary and have given Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. So that's where we are today. But it's about to change. So let's, let's try and understand this. We've already gone through some things in Revelation and Daniel which show great, horrible, unimaginable destruction on the six billion people who remain on earth today, or who are on earth today. And now we see that God is going to deliver his people with a great deliverance. And he says it's going to be so great that you're to forget about the past deliverances and stand in awe at what about is about to happen now. Let's consider quickly... Uh, Deuteronomy 31. Now, this is some prophecies given 
blessings and curses that were come and would come and what would happen in the latter days. Deuteronomy 31, verse uh, 29. Uh-oh. For I know that after my death you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the eternal. Where are we now? We provoke him to anger through the works of your hands, both spiritual Israel the church and physical Israel the nation. And his song was ended. Now, 32, uh, and let's go down here to verse 30. Uh, he's, he's talking about Israel and how their heart would wax cold and how they would not serve God uh, and would kick against him in chapter 32. Moses has just said, you will do evil and evil will befall you. And he says that they're a nation void of, under, of counsel, verse 28. Neither is there any understanding in them. Isaiah 51 and 52 show that of all the sons that the church has produced, none can save her except those whom God sends. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their latter end, verse 29. How should one chase a thousand, and two put ten thousand to flight, except their rock had sold them, and the Lord had shut them up? How could they put those people to flight unless God was there with them? For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. Theirs is the vine of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so on. So God says there's going to be a difference between his people and those, and that we couldn't, without His power, put that many to flight. One out of a thousand. One can put a thousand to flight. And then He makes it even greater. He says two could put ten thousand to flight. That's one ten thousandth. Or two ten thousandths could put, two people could put ten thousand to flight. Now, I've already quoted how God's people will eventually have their power gone, and this will end. But notice Leviticus, Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26. And here, let's uh, pick it up, verse 8. Speaking of when God gives power, five of you shall chase a hundred. That's five percent of... Five will chase a hundred. We'll chase ninety-five percent. And a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemy shall fall before you by the sword. He says he's going to give his church uh, sharp teeth as a threshing instrument in the end. The witnesses and the power of God through his people. Now let's go. Uh, let's see. That's one percent. A hundred would... Uh, put 10,000 to flight. Now let's go to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Here he's talking about all the trouble that is to come. The the wars, the famine, the pestilence, and so on in verse 3, and how God will cover us uh, with his feathers under his wings, and in him will we trust. 
Then he says not to be afraid for the terror by night or the arrow by day or the pestilence or the destruction that wastes at noonday. Now this is talking about the end time. All these things are about to come about. Verse 7, a thousand shall fall at your side. Now that's a picture of one person standing there who only has one right side. A thousand shall fall at your side. So that's one person and a thousand would fall there. Ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. So if you're standing there and a thousand people die on one side of you and ten thousand on your right hand, that's a ratio of one to ten thousand. Now, there were 150,000 in the church. One ten thousandth is .0001. One church member could have 10,000 fall beside him. Now, there were 150,000 in the church. Now, let's use our little group as a, as a for instance. There are about 15 of us left. You know how many that is? That's one ten thousandth. Or what was? 15, 150, 1,500, 15,000, 150,000. Is that a coincidence? But you could be standing with this apply to the church. For all of those who stand... Only one ten thousandth will remain. Out of 150,000, that's 15. Could God use something that small with that kind of destruction to the church to begin something and use them as a beginning for 10% to come or about 15,000? The numbers fit. Also of the nation. Let's go to Revelation 5.11. I said I'd come back there. Revelation 5.11. I'm going to throw some numbers at you that are startling to me. <clears throat> now here he's talking about the saints who sing a new song and so on, and how we'll be kings and priests on the earth. Verse 11, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders. So here are the angels of God the beasts, the twenty-four elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands. Ten thousand times ten thousand is a hundred million. Okay? Now this is the event that the world, the whole universe, God's throne and all the angels have been waiting for, that the mystery of God would be finished. That God's people would be raised up and made immortal, and be put ahead of and above the angels as the children of God, the bride of Christ, and in the family of God. So you'd think everybody who was a spirit being a righteous one at this point would be paying attention. They're not off doing something else. This is the big event of the all time. So they're all going to be there. And they will be gathered about the throne 
to see all of this happen. So that's a hundred million spirit beings there, angels and others, and then thousands of thousands. Uh, let's say 10,000 times 10,000 is a million. So thousands times thousands wouldn't be like a hundred million, but it could be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million more. Something like that anyway. So maybe there were like 150 to 200 million angels. Now if a third of that number uh, rebelled, let's say there were 210,000 just for instance to start with, the million, 100 million uh, plus a third and so on, and thousand times thousands, let's say 210 million, and then you take a third away, and that leaves, uh, well, take 70 million away of, out of 210 million, and uh, that means there might be 70 million demons, 40 to 70 million. There's 200 million of those locusts there, so maybe my figures aren't quite right, I don't know, but we, give some, we have some clues here about how many angels there are. Now, if you go back to Daniel 7 and verse 10, I won't turn there for sake of time, it says that there will be a hundred million people left for Christ to begin to judge at the beginning of the millennium. hundred million people left out of six billion. Now, it's interesting to me that there will be one hundred million to judge, and here in Revelation 5.11 it talks about one hundred million angels plus more. Now, is it that of every human being who survives into the millennium, 100 million of them will have an angel assigned to him so that that angel, as a teacher, Isaiah 30, 21, or 21, 30, whichever it is, uh, will tell you, this is the way, walk you in it. Will each person, each human, have an angel assigned to him? The numbers are right. And then you have thousands of thousands who might be held back to do administrative work and be around the throne and, and do other jobs. But the number of people left and the vast number of the angels mentioned here are the same. I find that quite intriguing. I don't know exactly what it means, but it could mean that. Now, if there are 100 million left of mankind, which Daniel 7.10 seems to indicate, and let's say there are, just for numbers today, 6 billion on the earth. Now, if there's 100 million left, uh, divide 100 million by 6 billion, and you get 0.0006% of mankind left alive. That's one ten-thousandth of one percent. One ten-thousandth of one percent is all that's left. Remember all those things that we saw in Revelation? A third of men, you know, and then great hail and, and a third of the sea and power over men and all those things add up. And when it's all said and done, after the seven last plagues, also, one ten thousandth of one percent 
or one ten thousandth percent. I guess it wouldn't be one of one percent, it'd be one ten thousandth percent. Not very many. Uh, left. One hundred million out of six billion. That's quite a deliverance that God would save a hundred million and he had to cut it short or nobody would have been left. But he delivered that many. Now, let's extrapolate that to the church. If there are 15,000 left who are faithfully serving God and in a place of safety, and it'll be somewhat less than that, but just taking 15,000 as a to do some math here. If there are 6 billion people and there are only 15,000 left on earth who are obeying God, and it'll be less than that. Do you know what percentage that is? 15,000 out of 6 billion? You can't imagine it, and I can't either. It's point zero 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 two five percent That's all. 15,000 out of 6 billion. That's how many escape sin and are changed into righteousness and an immortality when Christ returns of those that are alive and remain. That's the maximum number is about 15,000. And it'll be less than that. Will that make you forget the Red Sea if you're one of those? I would think so. <laughs> would you remember former things after all this death and destruction? And there's only point eight zeros plus two point five percent left. Now if God sees fit to count us worthy, brethren, to be part of that ten percent, what an incredible deliverance that is beyond us and our ability to fathom. Now let's take it one step further. It has been estimated by some that since Adam there have been about 60 billion people who have lived on the earth. Now that's a highly subjective number. It's a somewhat educated guess based on how people breed and how it came down at the flood and how it spread back out and all kinds of factors involved. But that's just a wild estimate, let's say, of 60 billion people. Now, out of that, how many will ultimately survive out of that number? 144,000 is all that will be resurrected in the first resurrection and go up to partake of the wedding supper with Christ. 144,000 out of 60 billion people. Now, you thought 15,000 left out of 6 billion was a small fraction. 144,000 out of 60 billion is one out of every 416, 666 Six 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 seven people. So out of all the people that have lived on earth, it's a wild estimate. 
Each one who's saved represents 416,000. One out of 416,000. If you're one of the first fruits, that puts you in some pretty special company. <laughs> 416,000 people didn't make it, and you did. How hard is it to get out of sin and Satan? If only one out of 416,000 roughly survive. This should give you chills to think about the possibilities for you. Now I'm going to read 1 Peter 2 to you. 1 Peter 2. And here, verse 9. No, Second Peter 2, verse 9, pardon me. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust to the day of judgment to be punished. God knows how to do this. If He calls you, He knows how to deliver you. Now, we complain about our trials, our troubles, our sicknesses, our weaknesses, our deformities, our hearing and our sight and our everything we have that we complain and gripe about. And yet here we are, a few of the called out ones. Not very many were called, and even fewer are being chosen. So lest we complain, lest we gripe, lest we murmur, lest we groan, lest we get angry, lest we don't think we can endure to the end, consider the company that you're in. Not very many out of this world are going to make it. One out of 416,000 will be at the wedding supper with Christ. And you can be one of them. Now, what do you have to complain about? You will be in a position where you'll be no more pain, no more tears, total security forevermore. Count your many blessings and name them one by one.